Hello everyone and welcome to Wavelength, the IUVA podcast. My name is Michael Hoffman and I'm a young professional working in the field of water and wastewater treatment. Today I am speaking with a professor who is a leading expert in the field of UV applications and solutions, particularly for developing countries. Today I am here with Professor Hadas Maman, who holds a PhD from Duke University. She is an associate professor at Tel Aviv University and head of the Environmental Engineering Department. She also leads the university's Water Technology Lab. Her main field of research is the development of novel technologies for water treatment using photons, radicals and nanoparticles. In recent years, Hadas has focused on applying these technologies in low and middle income settings. Professor Maman, thank you for being here today. Sure, thank you. <laughs> thank you for inviting me. Hi, most welcome. <laughs> Um, first up, as a first question to start, I wanted to ask uh, whether you can tell us how you got into the field of UV disinfection in the first place. Um, okay, so uh, actually I, I worked, uh, so after my master's studies, I worked as a process engineer in a paper mill. And I, I felt that I wanted to do something to study more. I wanted to... Um, to register to PhD studies. And my dad, uh, he's also a professor in, in air pollution. Uh, he told me that I should definitely go to the States. Um, so at some point I, I, I scanned over uh, different uh, universities and I got to, uh, to look at Carl Linden's uh, website, my professor Carl Linden. And yeah was really fascinated by his work on UV disinfection. And this is actually really what happened. So I sent, uh, I sent Carl an email asking him uh, if he's looking for a PhD student. And so we set a phone call. Um, we, we had a really good and serious talk about UV disinfection. I got even more into, uh, into it. And then he told me that he has a project on the impact of particles on UV disinfection. And if I want to join his uh, research lab, and uh, so, and from there it's history. So that's how actually I started, and I came to Duke University, and um, so from there it started my work on UV disinfection. Okay, and that was your start to water treatment in general, or uh, you worked uh, in the paper mill also before in water disinfection. So in uh, the paper mill was uh, just as being like a, a environmental engineer. So I worked in different fields, um, air, water, sewage, um, energy, um, toxic materials. Okay. Everything. But, but I always had a passion for water. And, um, and after, um, after I got to know Carl and talking, to, uh, talking with him about his research, I decided that I want to go uh, to uh, to continue my uh, studies on UV disinfection. I got actually fascinated with all those photons and all these things. So, um, so definitely, uh, this is how uh, this is how things started. Yeah, that's a great starting point. I mean, Professor <laughs> Linden is a real icon in the field. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and he was and still is. He was like amazing PhD advisor. So it was a, an amazing role model for me to continue my my um, my professional career. Yeah, that's a good start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And. Uh, from Dana, I heard that you relocated to India with your family for six months uh, to better understand the culture, the country, 
And you also keep going back as you are working with uh, the Indian Institute of, of Technology in Madras, Chennai, with the Tapar University and with Amarita University. So uh, my question would be, what was the first motivation to start these projects? And most importantly, why start them in India? What was the motivation for that? Uh, so uh, <laughs> it was like after my after my army uh, in Israel. It's very common to to backpack and travel for half a year or, or one year um, after the military army. So um, I at some point I traveled to India, and I really got fascinated by this country, by the cultures and the traditions, and how they respect nature and and all these things. Um, and at some point. Um, I, when I started my academic career, my goal was to publish as many papers as possible and to get grants because, you know, we need to like prove ourselves that we can be, uh, we can get a tenor and all that stuff. So it was like kind of being in a race. Um, I remember a point where I told myself, I, I'm not really uh, happy with what I'm doing because I came to, to, to work in the water field because my goal and dream and mission in life is to clean uh, and purify water. And so then it, it kind of like, I kind of reflected back to where I felt that I wanted to do things most, mostly. And that's how I, I started going to India back and forth. And I, I think that in the past years, I was like past two years, I was more in India than, than, um, than in Israel. Um, and I think that's how it started kind of, it, uh, it's, it's more a spiritual path, uh, that is combined with, research and wanting to do something especially in these communities okay so, yeah that sounds great i mean it's yeah. a great motivation to work with water and to help the people <laughs> yeah i had many contradictory uh feelings that were ignited and really distress and pain frustration anger i don't know like all these feelings coming together um looking at environmental damage and degradation of nature where um it happens like all around the world of course and yeah. this is something that kind of bothers me on on the day-to-day -day, um, basis uh because if eventually uh, the the environment is being abused and sewage is being dumped everywhere and the water is contaminated and i think that that not only me, but the people that work on environment, water, sewage, it's, it's, it's also emotional and spiritual. And, and it's also the research, but it's also much more than that. So I think it's a common theme with, with most of us that are working in this field. Yeah, I think people have to bring a certain passion to it to also pursue it professionally. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and uh, regarding these projects in India, um, can you describe how UV technology comes into the picture there, like uh, where it is applied and um, I don't know what pilot plants or what plants you have set up there? Um, yeah, sure. So um, basically uh, I've been working for the past um, maybe two years uh, on a project together with um, uh, Kerala University, uh, which is uh, it's, it's in the south of India and Basically, um, their mission is to provide uh, water, safe water in all the villages. Um, and, um, and the goal is to implement 5,000 5, um, treatment units. And most of the treatment units that they developed actually um, include uh, a process 
which is media filtration followed by microinfiltration, UV system, and then water storage. One of the main issues is that uh, the water um, is intermittent. So basically they have, I mean, basically they have about two hours of water per day. So the water after UV, uh, after it goes through low pressure UV disinfection, it's being stored in a, in a water tank. And when we did uh, measurements for, uh, for, the, um, for hundreds of, um, of water systems that were there, I mean, we didn't do for hundreds of water systems that we, we did for uh, some of them. Uh, we yeah. saw that there is, um, that there is a presence of, um, of coliforms, E. coli in the water, and basically the water was not uh, safe. And, and then when looking at these issues of community-based uh, water uh, disinfection systems, um, it, it's, it's really complicated because, because the people are at risk of being exposed to, to diseases. Um, and if you look at just at the statistics, um, up to 70% of the water is contaminated and there are about 200,000 deaths every year um, in India only because of diarrhea and dysentery and all these things. And, you know, just comparing uh, the people that suffer from these issues compared to what's happening today with the coronavirus, um, which is, which is now everyone is talking about it, but, but yeah. water is actually something that more people die out of it. People do not even have uh, clean water to wash their hands for 20 seconds or whatever is needed. So yeah. what I think is a really, uh, is really uh, is, is an issue that really must be solved for for all the viral and bacterial communities. The problem is that um, the rural co rural communities, those that are not in the cities, are are really at risk um, because uh, because first, in uh, many cases, they have to walk to the water uh, sources, and also due to the distance uh, from medical centers, and also like various um, um, challenges that they have to uh, face. And, and, and the issue is that they, they really need decentralized systems, but the systems really need to be um, uh, operated in a simple way because yeah. you can rely on people that they have so many challenges in their life. Uh, and so, so the idea of thinking that the water challenge is the most important challenge and they will do everything to get pure water is, is not realistic. Also, we do things that are not healthy for us, right? I mean, we do- yes. Food that is not healthy, or do these things. So you cannot expect people that have so many challenges in their life um, to uh, to think of the water as the most important challenge. And therefore, the treatment units that are are operated in the uh, in in the in the villages or um, or in areas of, the, of in rural communities, they should be uh, actually simple to operate. And that's how kind of back to the UV systems. Um, um, if you want, I can share a little bit of what we saw on on, on that regard um, with the UV systems and what kind of bothered us is that um, the systems actually were not, um, they were not automatic. So uh, basically you relied on the people, on their local skills to operate the systems. And and the thing that we found basically with UV um, that, that, First, um, there was no monitoring of the lamps. People did not know when the systems were implemented at first, uh, no measurements with sensors. So, so if there's degradation of the lamps, there is no uh, knowledge about that. So, so basically, um, this is how we kind of thought that we need to 
uh, solve and look at, at automation of the UV systems in a low cost and affordable way. Okay, and these units, are they always for one village or for how many people can they provide drinking water? Um, yeah, so it's kind of, so it's a different model. So when we think of centralized uh, disinfection systems or filtration water treatment systems, we think of more like uh, large scale systems. Uh, here we were talking about um, descent. So it, it's centralized because it's, a, it's, it's one, two systems per village, but it's still considered uh, decentralized, okay? Because it's actually, um, so actually these systems are not huge systems, um, yeah. but, but the problem is that if the idea is to provide water with good quality, then they did not reach the goals because the UV systems, um, there was no indication on, 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 on how much time they were operated, if the lamps had validation, quality insurance, uh, assurance uh, protocols, um, monitoring the voltage of the lamps. So nothing was there to indicate how much time the UV systems were working and, and if they're in operation, if they're, if, yeah. if, even if they emit light <laughs> for that. Uh, for that um, and they were actually surprised when we asked these questions because uh, they had no idea that these things uh, should be looked at. And so who does that on site? Like who installs the systems and who does the maintenance and ensures safe operation? Is that your partners from the universities or people from the village? Uh, yeah, so the university is actually, so it's a really interesting university because um, the scientists there, uh, the projects that they work on can be only projects that have a social impact. So, so you cannot work on a project that is related to your own benefit. It must have a social impact. So this is a re really special model for universities because uh, the idea is that, uh, that we get benefited. We get our funds from the society. And as scientists, we must return back to society back again. And therefore, uh, they're also connected to NGOs and, um, and Amrita is actually, I don't know if you're aware of, um, of uh, Ama. She's kind of a guru in, in South India and well-known all around the world. And she actually um, operates this huge um, uh, NGO that supports implementation of the systems. But the idea is not only implement the system, they really must work. So this is the idea is to provide safe water. So what we did is we found an affordable, our students were there in the field for about half a year, okay? Trying to understand- From, from um, Tel Aviv that, University. Yes, uh, Tel Aviv University, but also from India. So it was like a joint, so it's kind of a joint working together. Okay. Joint working together because uh, because, for example, in, in every place, like in, in India, like they speak their own local questions, especially the people in the village. So, for example, in, in, in South India and in Kerala, they speak Malayalam. So you cannot speak English to the peoples there. So definitely you need to work as a team. Yeah, and um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really it's really interesting. And the only way to understand what's happening in the field is just to be there and, and not not just for one, two weeks. It's basically it's basically being there for a long time and really learning the challenges. Yeah, so that's people the needs. Yeah. Okay. Um, but uh, so what kind of challenges or barriers uh, did you face or did you feel were um, most challenging for you to overcome for implementing these and ensuring the operation? 
So um, basically, the idea is that the systems were not automated. Okay, and so the automation will be just... Yeah, so I'll just give you one a small example that I think will, will, uh, that will, um, I think that will make things like clear. Okay, okay so when you operate, when you operate um, a filtration media filter, okay? So right, uh, you, uh, when you think of an automated system, uh, uh, you obtain the amount of water that you want, then you measure the differential pressure, and then you have backwash that, that cleans the system, and then you have, uh, then you have the process of, of the system being operated again. The problem is that because the system was intermittent, people uh, used the media filter for filtering the water, and there was no backwash. And when you rely on the next person to come to the system and backwash it, then this will not happen. Or when you rely on a person to take, to take the amount of water that they want and then operate the backwash by themselves, it also does not happen. So what happened is that the filter, filters were actually not operated um, in a way that provided safe water. So what our thought was, for example, and it's not just me, of course, it's a huge team of people. We thought, okay, so let's do something else. Let's think out of the box. Let's first backwash the filter, okay? So, so you can't get water if you don't first backwash. So then first backwash the system and then you'll get the water that you need to drink. So that way it kind of forces, um, it forces the system to be clean. And this is, this is a, a called like human-centered design. So when you design the systems, you don't design them for, for automated systems that are implemented in, in, in a centralized place. So you really need to think out of the box on how to design a system in the way that it will be operated um, and will provide safe water. So, for example, with the UV systems, uh, we, uh, we, are now, um, we are now thinking about adding uh, um, some, some sensor that will monitor time usage, okay? Okay. And you understand, for example, so if, you, if the UV system is used two hours per day, but let's say that the manufacturer um, tells, you, tells you that you're allowed to use the system for 8,000 hours, but when you turn it off and on daily, uh, I'm, I'm sure that the time that you can actually um, use the system is even lower. And also there was no monitoring on how much time the system was operated. So no one knew when we, asked, we told them, okay, how much time, how, so when did you get the UV system? From who did you buy it? Who's, the, who, who's taking the systems after? How much time did you, did you um, operate the system? And all yeah. those shutting, so nothing's actually known. So, uh, so our goal here when we talk about automated is affordable automated system that will not cost much, um, that will also allow you to have like a sensor. So, so if the system, if the UV system needs to be replaced, you'll have like a an red LED that tells you now you need to replace the system. So making things simple, yeah. And also uh, developing a low-cost UV sensor. Okay, so the sensor will not be very accurate, but yeah. it will still give indication if the system is not. So it's more an indication of, of not uh, getting the right dose, but rather understanding if the system is being degraded more than a certain value. And, and these are kind of where, where interventions uh, are really looking at, at, at the skills and looking at the people. So the technology will be designed according to the people that are using the technology and not the other way around, designing a technology and then dumping it to someplace in the field and assuming that the, the people will know how to operate it when they don't have, when they have other challenges and when they don't have the skills 
and 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 also for you when you open the tap you have clean water you don't need now to to think how to purify your water and so these are real real um that um that result from low funding poor capacity building and also um and I think it's also so I think yes, yeah, so that's that's mainly the the things that we're trying to work on. So it was more a question of monitoring and ensuring the surveillance of the system than an automation procedure. Um yes, but it's also understanding where the challenges are. Yeah. So with our, our when we work in all these projects, so it's also working on the social economy, economic and behavioral um, aspects. So as engineers, we don't have the, the understanding or the knowledge. Um, <laughs> we maybe think that we have, but we don't have the expertise in understanding challenges and yeah. understanding how to, um, how to solve them. We, so it's not everything is technical. And, yeah. and therefore it's like, um, it's, it's like kind of thinking of the approach, how to develop models that will work, that will provide safe water uh, for a long time. So it's really, it's really a learning process. Um, and um, I can just tell you that, for example, and we also have a, a huge project where we're, we're comparing the subjective and the objective um, water quality parameters in the villages. And then we're really trying to understand. So for example, um, do the people know that their water is contaminated, but they still drink it? So if the subjective, uh, so if on the subjective questionnaire, they say that they know their water is not clean, but they still drink it, then, then maybe we need to intervene more in education. But if, for example, on the subjective parameters, people are not aware that they're, they think that their water is good, but on the physical parameters, we see that the water is actually not good. So then we need to do other interventions that are related to technology. So in all these uh, complex settings, the interventions are really, uh, should really focus on, on behavioral changes, education, and technology. So this is the things that we're working on. Yeah, that's a very nice approach. I also like the motto of the Kerala University that it has to have an impact and a benefit for the people. Uh, it's an amazing place. You should definitely go there. They truly have a heart. It, it's amazing. That sounds very interesting, yeah. And you, <laughs> yeah. Already, you already mentioned before that sometimes there was a language barrier, but uh, apart from that, was there other barriers? Like you also mentioned the education about the water situation, but was there anything else that you experienced that was difficult? Yeah, definitely. So, um, so there are also cultural barriers, barriers for, so for example, um, and also the way that you dress, okay, that you should be like more like modest. And, you know, when you go to the rural settings, um, uh, you should be dressed accordingly. You should, in some cases, you should not look at people straight in the eye. Um, okay. So there are many things, cultural things that needs to be um, learned. Um, and before, uh, before going to the field, because you really don't want to come to a place which is not your home. Actually, they are inviting you to, to, to look at what's happening there and, and it's, it's their home. And being modest and understanding the cultural, you know, and also what I found is they had like really amazing things with using, um, I always have a problem saying this word, um, Ayurvedic. Um, uh, so they have like these natural um, herbs and, um, and barks and leaves that they're using for water disinfection. 
Um, oh, and okay. it, yeah, it, it's really understanding understanding um, the culture and the people and and therefore you always need to have people that know how to speak the lo- local language and but they will also understand you. So so when we did the survey, uh, so we worked like for, for a really long time on this survey where our students together with their students went to the field. It, it's really understanding how to, how to, so there's so many gaps, yeah. but, but it's really interesting. It's also really interesting. Yeah. And I guess it also the challenge is that there's no one fits all solution probably. Yeah. Depending I, on the region. Actually, the I think you, I think you said it perfect. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's no one fit solution. Yeah. Okay, uh, so uh, as we have to come to an end, I also would like uh, to let people know where can they find more information about your work and the work you do in India also? Of, of course, the publications that we're working on in the lab are published, but we still did not publish the work that we did um, uh, in India for the past years. And um, we're now starting, because it took time to collect the data, develop the models and, and find good partners that we can work with. In addition to that, uh, we have a lab that is the a development lab, uh, and it's called the Nitsan Lab. It's N-I-T-S-A-N, um, where I'm collaborating there with, um, with other um, scientists uh, working on sustainability development. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure, um, sure, sure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, you're welcome. All right, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this look into a unique UV application. If you'd like to learn more about Professor Maman's work, you can Google Hadas Maman Lab and find out more on her website. Wavelength comes to you from the International Ultraviolet Association. The show is produced by Dana Pusti, Nathan Moore does our sound design, and our music is by Justin Dorsett and Stephanie Gora of Almost Lovers. I'm Michael Hoffman. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode and keep checking out the podcast for more news from the UV world.